Hi and welcome back to Beyond All My Expectations. It's your girl Nikki and today I'm here with a fave, Salma Eldani. Hi Salma. Hey. How are you doing today? I'm good. I've eaten cake twice today so I feel like I'm set for a good day. A good day. So I see it was recently your birthday because obviously social media. You had about 10 different cakes. Someone is living my life and it's not me. <laughs> There's a surplus. There's a huge surplus. But this is why I totally and always encourage my friends to live in the same neighbourhood as me. Because what happens is I then go on cake runs. And if you live close to me, you will always be part of this bounty. Technically, we're not that far from each other. But if you live in Watford... <laughs> It's a 20 something, no, it's another. It's a straight train, let's just use those words <laughs> from my doorstep to your doorstep. Okay, it is one train. We're not going to talk about the time. You know what? I'll put a cake and some tin on that train and you can pick it up on the other end. Can you imagine? We're going to shut down TFL because they're going to think it's a bomb. Please. True, true. It'd be a technically funny story, just not ha-ha funny, like, oh, that was dark funny. Um, yeah, exactly. But yes, okay, so one thing I always do is I have guests introduce themselves because people are, I guess, more dynamic when they talk about themselves, but also because if you've ever read Sama's bio, you'd be like, actually, you know what, I'm going to leave this to her because <laughs> there's a lot going on. I don't know how this is one person. So over to you, Salma. Who are you? Don't leave it to me. This is why I like people introducing me. Because I'm like, tell me, what do I do? I'm not quite sure. But fine, I'll do it, Nikki. Someone's got to do it. My name is Salma Elwadani. I do various things. I'm a writer, a poet, a BBC broadcaster, a business owner. But I think the easiest way to link up everything that I do is at the heart of all of my work is feminism and gender it's about changing the lives of women and girls and I might be doing that by running a marketing business that specializes with diversity equity and inclusion so I'm working with clients across sectors across industries to create more diverse companies and that's diversity across of course gender and a huge focus on women and women in senior positions in business but also on getting more ethnically diverse people into organisations, more working class people into organisations, because when we have more diverse people in those spaces, life is better for women and girls. Statistically, that's just true. So before our call, I was working with one of my clients and we ran a workshop with someone and it was all about women in business, right? So I might be doing that in my in my corporate side of life, but the other side of life, all of my work, my articles, my columns, my book, my novel, my poetry is all about telling the stories of women, whether that's highlighting their issues, their challenges, their current uh, challenges that they're facing and their expectations, whether that's writing stories about women that recreate the narrative of women in literature or women in media, whatever that is. So, that's always the vein. You know, if I'm doing public speaking, I'm talking about women. If I'm writing poetry, I'm talking about women. If I'm working in the corporate world, I'm trying to get more women into the corporate world with me. So that's maybe the easiest way to describe it. I fight for women and girls in everything that I do. I just do it in lots of different avenues. Okay, see, now if I'd done your intro, it would not have sounded nothing like that, okay? It would not have had the word women so many times, which I just love. <laughs> and it would not have been as eloquent and just or not have brought together your world so beautifully because you talk about your corporate self and you talk about your creative self and you have been able to merge your interests in both spaces really beautifully in terms of I'm centering women. How do I do it as a Salma, the person you see on LinkedIn versus Salma, the person you see on a you know, TED Talk stage. Again, she hasn't thrown this in. Salma has been everywhere talking about women and doing it very beautifully, doing it very artistically, doing it very eloquently. And, you know, it's just been a delight to watch you, you know, really blossom into yourself and your platform, particularly over the last year and a half, which is why I'm so excited to actually have a conversation with you today. So I want to start with Salma, the corporate person. So just you know, I looked through your bio and I saw your experience in the corporate side, you know, started after you came back from Cairo and you'd been blogging and you were, you know, you had a voice about what was going on within that space with the Arab Springs, you know, what do I want to call it? A, what's the word I want to use for that situation? Revolution? Revolution, yes, call it that. And say, what side of the fence am I speaking about here? Um, 
and you came in, you came back to the UK and went to the corporate world, you know, given that you'd been in the space in a very political and a very sort of, and the word I'm going to use, activist type space, what made you decide to return into a corporate world? I think it happened by accident. It's so funny because we have conversations like this and we interview people and we ask them about their journey. And I do yeah. it on my radio show every day, you know, I, I interview people and I talk to them about what made you do that thing and what made you go yeah. here. And I think the thing that I found from interviewing all of those people and from my own life experience is that it's never this active, you know, conscious, yeah. You know what I mean, it's never like sitting down going, I'm going to do this tomorrow. This is where I want to go next. So that's what I'm going to do. So much of our journeys in life and so much of the crossroads we arrive at come from a set of circumstances and it's you either making the best of horrible circumstances or you just trying to cobble something together because you're trying to get to some kind of thing that you can't really see that might be in the distance and I'm just going to do this thing because right now it works for me and it works for my life so that's always been the thing I, I, I don't know there's we talk in retrospect about this huge intentionality and I don't think that's that's always true. I think there is passion there for things that you like and that takes you in specific directions. But that, listen, this is where I'm going and that's my next choice, I find isn't always there. So, yeah. you know, I, I finished university, I did my degree, I did my master's. And then just because of the climate of the world at that time, I knew that I would get an office job somewhere because that's what we did. did. Yeah. This was in 2009, you know, we didn't have the boom of entrepreneurship that we have now. We weren't lauding that as this incredible viable option, you know. Apprentice schemes weren't even seen as something worthy. It was university and then it was office jobs. That was the trajectory of life for so many of my counterparts. So pre all of that conversation, I knew that once I'd finished, I would get a job somewhere. And so then I just went, well, I've had four years in the library. probably don't want to go straight into another four walls somewhere so let me go and do something different and before I kind of make that leap I didn't know what that job would look like I just went I'm gonna go do something different so then I trotted off to Egypt because I you know I was born in Egypt in North Africa I had this huge yearning to be on the continent and to find a heritage that I hadn't been able to access with an Irish mother and a Pakistani stepfather in the northeast of England so I returned I had this huge calling to go back And I went back and I worked on a horse ranch on a farm in the desert. And I was a farmer. I woke up every day. I milked the cows. I fed the chickens and the goats and the sheep. I rode the horses. I groomed the horses. I mucked out stables. And I did that for five months. And that I did that not because I've ever sat here and gone, I want to be a farmer. choice but because I wanted to go to Egypt. And my mum went, I've got a friend who runs a farm. Shall I ask her if she wants a farm? Yeah. I went, yeah, because it gets me, it gets me to that next point, right? So then I was, I was a farmer, (laughs) and then after I had enough of that, and I met someone, and they said, why don't you live with me in the city? Because we've got a spare room. So then that opportunity came up, and then I went, yeah, okay, I'm now I'm going to go to the city, and then the day I moved to Cairo, because this farm was on the outskirts, the day I moved to Cairo was the 24th of January 2011, which is significant, as people will know, because 25th of January 2011 is the date of the Egyptian revolution. So I went to the city going, I'm going to now get a job in an office, maybe an international company that needs English language speakers. But then the next day was the revolution. (laughs) So Uh, things are very, very different very quickly. You know what I mean? You know, the city ground to a halt. We were under military curfew. We were protesting on the streets every day. And I protested because that's my country. Why wouldn't I, right? I wasn't going to sit on the sidelines of history. I never intentionally went, I'm going to fight in a revolution. That's going to be my life goal. I just happened to be in one. And therefore, I felt I had a responsibility to fight for my country. Um, And so then it got to a point where, you know, political unease and curfew can only take you so far. So two and a half years later... And in like after the revolution had died down, I became an English teacher for high school kids for language and literature. Again, I've never wanted to be a teacher in my life, but the economy had bottomed out. All the international companies had left Cairo. No one was doing business, but children still needed to be educated. And wealthy, high class Egyptians, upper class Egyptians would still pay lots of money for English native speakers to teach their children. Right. Which is why I got got that job because really it was unless I was going back to the farm it was the only job available and I was kind of done milking cows great life skill to have but not a long term yeah practice 
Yeah, I did have a pet okay. lamb though, and I missed my pet lamb, but it wasn't enough to draw me back to to the farm. So then what I. Your lamb, what was your lamb called? Gigi. Oh, Gigi. She had a little red ribbon, and she came and slept on my chest every afternoon. She'd crawl into my lap and put her her chin on my chest and go to sleep. She followed me everywhere. I was basically Bo Peep. It was a good time for everyone. Um, so then I returned from Cairo. And then it's that thing of, well, I've been out of the country for two and a half years, almost three years. You know, I haven't got experience up. Yeah. in my master's working in England because I left straight away to go to Africa. So then it's like, well, what, what, what can I do? I'm just trying to find a job and I'll, I'll take any job. And I was living back in Newcastle doing this admin job, trying to get jobs in London. I was applying for anything and everything that I thought would, would work for my skill sets and what I could do. So I was applying for event planner jobs and event coordinator jobs because I was really good at organising things. And I was applying for PR jobs because I love telling a story and I've always been a writer. So I can I could tell a story for a company and a brand. Yeah. And then I had a friend who was just working at a recruitment company, a global IT recruitment company. And she said, there's this job going around for a bid writer. And you basically have to write compelling. And she was like, this is perfect for you. You're a great writer. You're a great organiser. Okay, yeah, it's part of my skill set. I can write. I'm a writer. I'll just take this job that requires you to write. And that's how I got into corporate. And I, it was never because I sat there and went, I'm going to be head of bid management at a global recruitment company. I just thought I can do that job and it's it adheres to my skill sets. So I'll do it. So that's how it started. Okay, so, so many journeys <laughs> to get to this place where I, the place that ends up bid writer, which you're like, mm -hmm. not as not as exciting as farm revolution or even sort of, even the English language. But, you know, every single thing that came about in this journey was, you, you know, connections and, you know, someone saying this is here, I'm going to jump at it, this is here. And you say, okay, yes, I'm going to try that. Had you always been this trier? Had this always been like, you know, fundamental to who you were? Or was this something you were like, oh, actually, I guess this is what the real world world looks like? Because I think there's a difference between where you are you know, in secondary school and university, and then you step into the real world and like, actually, you have to be a lot more adaptable. Because I think school can be very just like, oh, I want to be this when I grow up and life is going to be this and I'm going to live on my ranch. And I don't know if this is anyone's vision. But <laughs> I'm going to be honest, a bit of my vision. Um, so, you know, did you find this out about yourself post uni or have, has this always been fundamental to you being like, I will try anything to see what the world has to offer? Do you know what? And you're right. It, all of those things happened because I went, yeah, OK, I can do that. I mean, I couldn't. I've never been a farmer. I've never milked a cow or mucked out stables or groomed horses and then galloped them through the Egyptian desert every oh day. Oh, my God. Um, they're never things that I... I've done and I think you're right I think so many people get offered opportunities and they go no I, I've never done that I can't do that that's not my skill set that's not my job so to answer your question I have been inherently built this way to go yes I can do anything and I will forever and I do and this is true I forever attribute that to my mother and the fact that I was home educated and I didn't go to school Ah. I wasn't in school so I, my mum took me out of school when I was about six and me and my she home educated me and my brother herself and I didn't go back into the education system until sixth form to do my A-levels so I did my GCSEs at home so from the age of six to 16 I'm not in the education system for those incredibly formative years where yeah. you're molded by your environment and your peers and peer pressure I was oblivious absolutely oblivious to it and we had a real loose education shall we say so we didn't have a tv growing up never had one still don't have one and nice. we were we come from such a working class background really poor so we didn't have laptops and tablets and then you know none of that was kind of really around when I was growing up anyway to the extent that it is now yes. um, and so what we did have was a library card and the structure that we did have was that every Thursday morning, we, she'd, my mum would send me and my brother off with our backpacks and we'd go, we'd walk to the swimming pool, we'd go swimming in the morning. And then every Thursday afternoon, we would just spend it in the library. And oh. it wasn't like, go to the library and read this. It was just go to the library. <laughs> and be there. Be there and read some, read whatever. Um, and I remember the limit for my library was nine books. So every Thursday I would take out nine books, I would read them, and then the next Thursday I'd take them back and take out another nine books. And that was that was our education. Or when my auntie got married in 
in America, you know, and we managed to save money to go for the wedding. Then my mum just hired a car and put a tent in the back. And then we drove all around America. And so I learned about the American Civil War by being in, in the places that it happened. I learned about wow. the when we were in Pennsylvania and we went around, you know, we had family in London. So my mum would, would take us to visit the family and we would spend the day in the History Museum. We would then spend the day in the science museum. We spend the day at the portrait gallery. So, so much, we'd go to lectures. I remember going to this lecture on the Titanic and why the Titanic failed because of the rivets and the, the iron casting. Yeah. That's how we learned things, just by being out and about. It was never, it wasn't until a year before our GCSEs that we sat down with a book and a curriculum and learned what we had to, to pass that exam, to get to sixth form, to get to university, right? And we only really did that because I like cried about it. And I was like, I want to take exams my friends are doing them like my brother took his GCSEs at the same time as me and he's two years older than me because at oh, the time wow. he, he wasn't yeah right so it was a really lucid so when you my point is when you have an education like that and your mum just sends you out every day to either play out or climb a tree or go to the library you have this natural curiosity and I was raised by a woman who would, just looked at me and went who would never ever tell me I was beautiful not once did she tell me I was beautiful, but she would just tell me that I had a brilliant brain and that I was very capable and I could do anything. And that's how I was raised. You know, I was 10 going up to the library being like, I would like this, 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 and this from you, please. I'm doing this project and I need to find out these things. So it is 100% nurtured that way. So that when I got to, hey, do you want to work as a farmhand? I went, yeah, of course. Yeah, I'm, sure. I'm smart and I can figure it out. Yeah. So it was I definitely, yeah, for my mama. Yeah, I love that and I'm surprised I know this about you because your education system sounds like my dream a swim in the morning and libraries in the afternoon oh my god <laughs> like it was yeah a lot of Lego playing in bed. I played a lot with Lego yeah it was great again the dream <laughs> <laughs> because I was also the person who was sent to the libraries on Saturdays I was just like come home when you're done I'd be yeah. like, oh, I read three books today and I brought home 10. That is a dream. But th that's the thing. It's so funny because now I think people would say that child's education is being neglected. Yeah, it's. I think, you know, there's very regimented. And I talk about this a lot with my mother who owns a nursery. And there's just so much regulation on education that it forgets the individual. And it's just very much about this collective and this standard. And it's, you know... Yeah people need different things to be nurtured and you you know you don't always learn by sitting in a classroom like some people do there's some things for me like you know I the way I recollect information is I remember what was going on in that room when I was learning it and I go oh yeah that was happening if the teacher was babbling in the background I sort of tune back in like yeah, yeah. Later. and then some things I'm like oh no I picked this up reading I like I pick up a romance novel read and they probably have like a trail about scientific discovery and from there I'd like follow the thread down and be like okay. right. so yes I do think you know yeah education sometimes is very limiting and but I think what it gave you which is it's just like I guess you just try things, you know, and if I if you don't have structures that tell you what life is supposed to be like, then you don't have any assumptions about what's possible or impossible. And I think that's a fantastic skill, but it's also something that's very reflective of who you are and how you show up. I think when you take away the boundaries, then you have infinite possibilities, right? Yeah. And I know there's this um, book by John, and I always forget his surname, but it's called Weapons of Mass Instruction. Ooh. And it's all about how you institutionalize people and how it starts at uh, the minute they go into nursery and school and that's the beginning yeah. of putting people in a system which they then will stay in until they work and retire and die because that system benefits capitalism and I always think it was massively instrumental that I wasn't put in that system because it's changed the way I think about the world it's changed what I believe I can do as an individual yeah. and what I think is possible and how I then react to situations you know when I'm confronted with figures of authority for example you know I've got so many friends who did go to school and they just go oh okay yeah no worries but then I'll go yes but why and that doesn't make sense and actually let's hold this person to account and ask them why because I've never been in a system that went these are your teachers this is authority do not step over that authority line you know mm -hmm. um, and it changes it changes the way you mold your brain and how you move through the world like I you know, I, and I always credit everything back to my mum and not in the way that people go at an Oscar speech. I just want to thank my mum for supporting me all the way through it. But I want to thank my mum for taking me out of the system. For every time I said, well, can I do that? 
for looking at me like I just sprouted an extra head and looking at me like I was the most ridiculous thing and very sternly telling me to stop being stupid. So I grew up just thinking, well, of course, everything is possible. You know, so it's, I think you do take those boundaries away. It changes everything. I think it really does. And I, you know, looking at your, what you do at present again. So, you know, you have the corporate side, you have the BBC presenting work, you are a poet, you're, novels coming out what in 2022 was it yeah Yeah. and these are more these are many things to manage at the same time and there's Mm -hmm. you know a conversation about how are you balancing these many projects and how are you able to look at everything and be like I can bring my whole self to all these spaces at the same time I I don't mean you know in the same time same moment but every time I can turn and say I'm corporate Salma right now and then I'm poet and then author and I'm presenter how are you able to do those and how do you think you've been equipped to do that for your background yeah and you know what I think there is this general idea in our society that you have to be one thing and that you have to be great at that one thing and you know friends tell me this all the time they're like you just need to hone in on like your one thing and then you're going to be like incredibly successful at it and I vehemently reject that like I reject that a lot I don't think that's true I think the brain is massive and we only use tiniest part of our brains. I think our interests are profound and huge. I think the possibilities in life and the way that we live today are phenomenal. And I couldn't think of anything more boring than just being a poet. I don't want to just be a poet and do that one thing. I don't want to just be a writer, you know? Like if you had to trace everything to one thing, it's writing, right? Like I am, I am a writer to my very core. And, you know, why was I good at marketing? And why was I able to become senior at marketing? And why was I then able to set up a marketing business? Is because I know how to write a story. And that's all marketing is. It's telling a story of a brand, of a product, of a business. That's that's all it is. Yeah. All marketing is, is selling a story to someone. So that's why I always say that. And I used to hire into my teams, people who were writers, who were storytellers, could could be some of the best marketeers because they can tell an emotional story that grips people and makes people either go, oh my God, I'm gonna cry at this chapter or, oh my God, I love this product, I'm going to buy it and be a, a huge advocate of that brand, right? Yeah. When it, well, how does poetry come into it? It's writing, it's just writing in a different form, right? My public speaking, what is it? I write a public speech and then I give it and then I memorize it, right? So it is, it is writing at the very core, but I would hate to just, write novels and not do anything else. I want to write novels and then tell really compelling stories on air when I'm broadcasting and interviewing someone else, you know? I want to tell those stories in different ways. I want to help change the world and I've got to do that through business. It's not going to be just through writing novels. And so I I do really reject the idea that we just have to do this one thing and do it great. And I do all of these things and I don't always do them well. And I drop so many balls. But the way it is, is I'll drop my poetry ball. And I haven't written poems for three months now, because I've been editing this novel. And then when that novel is coming out, and we're in press releases, and I'm not writing the novel, I'll probably start writing loads of poems again. And then on, on a Monday, I never write because I'm always doing client work, right? So the uh, also, I, I hate the idea that people think that there's these wonder women and wonder men out there juggling everything. We're not. We're dropping balls all over the place. And then we just pick them up on a different day. And then we juggle that ball for a bit before putting it down. And and not everyone wants to live like that. And not everyone is suited to live like that. But I, I just find it, it's enriching and it, it all bleeds into one another. And my poetry makes me a better novel writer because I write in poetic prose. And my ability to tell a good story on the pages of a novel makes me a better presenter on radio because I engage with with humans in a different way. It all bleeds into each other and all enriches each other. And that is a glorious life for me. I don't wanna do just one thing. I absolutely love, yeah, that, that, yeah, that focus on the idea of, you know, what society says we should do and you know the need to be one person you need to do this thing well and my problem with that oftentimes is when people say you need to do something well they have measures of what well looks like because mm-hmm. you know there's this idea like if you work so hard and if you work really hard you'd be so successful and you have all this money and in the case the fact that some, many people do one thing and they do it very well but their success doesn't measure up to these metrics that the world sets aside for you you know mm-hmm. and because 
for instance, you look at teachers and there's so, there's only a limit about on how much you can earn because of the way systems set up. It doesn't mean teachers aren't doing it very well um, and mm -hmm. doing this one thing and standing in these spaces. So yeah, it's it's a very yeah, it's a very limiting statement for people to make. But you then come into you know your side where you're doing these many layer things. And I think people people do talk about this idea of dropping balls and you know, yeah, sometimes like things don't work out but we don't talk about what it might do to the personal you know because how because i think what needs to be spoken about is how do you manage those moments where you think oh no this wasn't accomplished this week what have you built over time that's helped you really come into to come to a point that says this isn't working right now and it's okay for this to be on pause you know yeah. i think sometimes when you haven't done something for a while you think oh i'm failing at this and you don't understand that life is about pauses and starts not just like starts and stops so what have you built over time that's really helped you understand that it's a pause and not a stop? Do you know what? Probably my novel. And I, I, used, I used to do that thing exactly as you said. And I used to, a couple of years ago, talk to my friend and I used to be like, oh, God, I'm such a fucking failure. I wanted to have published this novel before I was 30. You know, yeah. I just turned 33 and it's coming out next year. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I was always, you know, God, what, why haven't I? And I would just beat myself up with it, you know? Maybe I should stop doing this corporate work. Maybe I should stop doing that and just go away and just write. I just need six months all by myself with nothing else to write this. And my friend, God bless her, and thank you, she always used to say, it will come when it's ready. Yeah. Rush this. It will come when it's ready. And the novel that's about to come out has been in the making for years. I have written versions of this book, not just one book. I, you know, I have written a whole chunk of it, a majority of it, and then gone, I hate it. And then rewritten the whole thing completely, changed the character names, changed what was going to happen. You know, this has been in iterations for years. And that, honest to God, taught me, and I guess recently having got my publishing deal and with it being on the horizon to come out, that taught me everything because in the time that I started writing the book to the time now of getting my book deal, I have become a poet. I have become a business owner. I have become a public speaker. I've become a radio broadcaster. And I swear to God, you know, hand on heart, all of those things made me a better writer. Being able to stand on a stage and captivate an audience made me a better writer. Being able to hone my craft for a few years on poetry made me a better writer if I had gone at the time that I wanted to initially and finished the book and sent it out to publishers I'm telling you now I would not have got a six-figure deal yeah I got a six-figure deal now because it was ready because all of those things made me a better writer so it really taught me just to to calm down on all of that so whenever I start thinking well I haven't picked up this ball for a while when it's ready, Thelma, it will come when it's ready. You have to trust the timing and that you're not always in control of the timing. You know, that actually, if you are creative and if you're in an art form, you have to give over a lot of your control to that art form, that the book will pour out of you when the book is ready. And I know this is a, a narrative that a lot of people fight against because they're like, no, writing is a schedule. You sit down and, yeah. and you know what? It is. There's there's part and parcel to that. I think those two things work hand in hand. So I wrote, I rewrote my entire book in a month in lockdown, wow. right? In the first lockdown. And I said to myself, we I mean, are on lockdown number like 25 at this point, guys. Yes. No one knows what number we are anymore. But yeah. And don't get me wrong, there was lots of procrastination, there was lots of lying around doing nothing for the first part of lockdown. But then I was like, oh, I just need to get it together. And now I need to rewrite this whole thing. So actually, I'm going to set myself a target of 5,000 words a day and write 5,000 words a day. By, by the time this month is over, I'm going to have sent it final to my agent. Right. And in that month, the book poured out of me. Yes, I had a target and I didn't do anything until those 5,000 words were done. And in my radio show, people picked up the slack because I wasn't putting as much effort in and I'm thankful yeah. to them for doing that. And some days I wrote 10,000 words. Some days I wrote 7,000 words. And when I look back on that time, I genuinely feel nauseous at the intensity of that month. But that the book did pour out of me in that month. In 5,000 word slots a day, in 7,000 words a day, it poured out of me because that was 
a mixture of discipline and saying this is, but it was also the exact right time for it to pour out of me. Yeah. It happened before it could. So I think you have to trust, if you're a creative, you have to trust that the poem will come when it's ready to come, that you don't have a lot of that control, that the book will come when you've done enough of the groundwork, enough of the waiting, enough of the procrastinating. It will come when it's ready. You have to trust that. Wow. Yeah, I, yeah I'm yeah, i tapping into that. I need to trust this <laughs> because I was sitting in front of a notebook. I'm like, wow, words. I do not know them. Two degrees later and not a single word coming to mind. But I think, yeah, it's, you know, that balance of the discipline. And I'm a bit terrified that you wrote your novel, rewrote in a month. But I think, you know, what's not being factored here is the novel existed in iterations prior to this. There was the idea that had been the sitting down. You had you had seen this novel in words and just needed to rewrite, you know, this space of words. And, you know, I think you mentioned your six-figure deal and lots of people see them, they're like, oh my God, I can't wait to get there. But the journey of getting there is you've told stories in so many different ways, yeah. so many different platforms, through so many different mediums, that storytelling is not just understanding what you can put on paper, but understanding voice, characterization, yeah. like landscapes. It's, you know, you're bringing things to life. And I'm saying this not having read Salma's novel, but having, you know, listened to her poetry, listened to her present, listened to her talks. I'm so excited. And she knows I'm going to hold her to ransom if I don't get one of the first um, <laughs> advanced reader copies. Um, I will literally be at your house. <laughs> you'll, be, you'll be front row at the book lodge, babes. It's, it's happening. I'll be at your house and I'll be bashing cakes <laughs> every day. <laughs> Listen, I know you'll only be coming for the cake, not for the books, but that's fine. I'll have cake for you. <laughs> Okay, I can read the book in four hours. I just need two cakes. It's exactly. <laughs> right. I'm here for that. I, I approve that message. <laughs> uh, yeah, so joyful for that. Um, I want to speak about, you know, Salma, the business owner, because there, there are certain spaces you have to step into as a business owner. What does business look like for Salma? What is, who is Salma, the corporate person? I know, like, it's very much similar. To, like, there are similarities to, you know, the creative side. But what does it mean to step into that business space, and how have you owned your yeah owned your corner in the business landscape? And I mean, I very much mean the corporate space because you are you are many business persons. But in the corporate space, how have you owned your corner in that space? The business Salma probably swears a lot less just okay. because clients, you know, they can't quite take it all. But also, you know, there's I think I started in business trying to be this image of what you should be in business yeah. Super booted professional you know adhering to all of the standards that are that are placed upon you when you walk into the corporate world and the corporate world again and let me kind of differentiate here between the corporate world and business they are two different things they yeah. really are. you can be in business and not really be in corporate at all you can run a plumbing business right? And you're not in corporate. But when you're in corporate and you're in high rise glass towers and you're there for 12, 14 hours a day and you spend your life there and you all power dress your way to work. That's what I'm talking about when I when I talk about corporate. And that's when I started in business. That's how I started. I started in corporate in Heron Tower in London, which is a really well-known tower, right? That's where I started the business that I was working at. And people did power dress to work. You know, people were in three, 5,000 pounds to work, you know, and it was a sales company. It was flashy, there was money there, you know. As one of a few people in the business who brought in so much money with my bid writing and my business development, got flown to Vegas for five days, all, everything paid for. You know, that's the, <laughs> that's the business that I was working in, right? That's the life that you're in. And it's a world away from other businesses. And it's a world, it's a, just a different set of behaviors is required from you. So when I started, I was trying to do my best to live up to all. And I'm a classic overachiever, right? So if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it the best that I can. And I really adhered to all of that. And it was then the realization that I had that to be in corporate meant to adhere to professional standards. And the realization that what professionalism actually meant was white middle class behaviors. And that realization made me go, well, fuck this. I've got to change a little bit of who I am in these spaces because that does not serve me. And that's not, and I just don't agree with that. Like I fundamentally don't agree with that. When you say, let's all be professional, you mean, Salma, don't come in here and swear and talk about something else that we don't talk about in business. Yeah. That's not professional. Well, it is. I'm actually a great professional. I mean, I'm amazing at my job. Like I said, I was one of only a few people globally that brought in enough money that you flew me to Vegas, that's how much money I brought you in. Yeah. 
Now, I, I brought in 3.6 million in six months for your business. So I am professional, actually. I'm, in, I'm an incredible professional. But because I eat different foods to you at lunchtime and because I might, you know, wear different sets of outfits to you or whatever, then you say I'm not professional, right? Yeah. It was that realization. I was like, this is just not going to work for me anymore. And so... And as well, when you when you enter corporate, you are confronted with your otherness in a way that you never are in any other space in your life. It's suddenly a problem that you're a brown woman. It's a problem that you're a Muslim, right? It's a problem that you don't drink and get drunk with everyone else on a Friday night or a Monday night or a Tuesday night or because <laughs> that's corporate, right? It's a problem oh. that you're not in coke in the toilets with everyone else because you don't do that because of your religious beliefs, right? Or whatever beliefs. There's plenty of Muslims that I know who like yeah. drugs, right? But for me... You know, it, you, you're suddenly confronted with all of it. And I was like, this is not okay. So I remember just starting to, to change that. And a lot of that change, honest to God, it came when I set up my own business, when I had more autonomy and had more authority. And I, you know, I already didn't have a job, so I didn't need to be scared of not having a job. So I could be however I wanted. But again, when I started my business, you know, I still adhered to quite a strict set of behaviors because I needed money and I needed rent and I needed this client and I needed them to, to pay my invoice. But as time went on and I became more confident in getting clients and that clients would arrive and I would get paid and I wasn't going to end up destitute on the street, I just started to gravitate more and more towards people like me in business. You know, I said, I don't want to work with someone who doesn't understand me, doesn't understand that I am so good at my job whilst also not adhering to the same behaviors that you do. And that's OK. Or not speaking in the same way as you do. And that's OK. Or not coming from Oxford or a yacht. And that's OK. Right. And so I, I did start to change that. And, you know, like I've just had a call earlier this morning, actually, with a longstanding client of mine who's my favorite client and is as sweary and non-professional by those standards as I am and that relationship has been going for years now because ultimately you do business with people that you like that's the that's the crux of it and I, I just got to that stage and I remember clients coming to me and I knew what they would be like and I knew they wouldn't understand me and I wouldn't understand them and I declined to work with them because I was like this just isn't a good fit and they'd be like no but we we can pay you more it's not about the money this isn't a good fit you and I it has to be a match has to have compatibility there so I think that's probably where the change came in I think you are seriously fearless because you know the reality of how many people particularly again you're rather young so you've worked you are rather young um in the grand scheme it's of things so like old <laughs> you know like in a world where you have like 24 year old empire owners do you know what I mean I'm like and I also feel 63 on the inside so I'm actually 63 on the inside and 33 on the outside. So I'm like, how old is that? 96? Something like, no, yeah, 96. I'm 96. Um, I mean, you and Queen Elizabeth are, you know, just on the same path. No, no, no. The reality is you are rather young because we think about, you know, the time at which we, you leave university, what, 21, 22. So, you know, this is a 10 year window of a lot going on. And I think the boldness to not just understand the world and then step into it in your own way and you've been doing this for, you know, several years now. So yeah, when I say it's a 10-year journey, I mean, you've already, you know, I think five years in, you were like, actually, I got the game and this is who I am. It's a boldness. And, you know, it's not something that's very easy to attain. Uh, and I think, you know, let's pause and really earmark that, that, you know, again, Salma, fitting 60, you all feel 60 on the inside right now. <laughs> I was I was going out of a car yesterday and I had to hold my back. <laughs> <laughs> my knees are not what they used to be honestly and you know what so I said something the other day and my mum replied and she was like well you've always been old haven't you so she said you'd be happy at home with your cup of tea I was like yeah I just I don't want to go out just... always always yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. so I think yeah this is something like really important to acknowledge and I really like love that about you and I know there's so many there's so many facets to you that we could talk about you know like the presenter self and we've you know we've, it's been highlighted and I think you know just, if you want to listen to Salma the presenter, she's on the BBC. I, what show are you? Because I thought like you do takeovers. Your <laughs> the BBC loves you because I'm like on Salma's yeah. page. I'm like, okay, Salma's doing a takeover of the Late Show today. She's <laughs> it's surprising because I've got so many opinions, and that's not very BBC to be fair. But yeah, again, I can never simply do anything, can I? I do the Late Show on BBC Radio London. 
And then I do the early breakfast show at 5am on Saturday and Sunday. And that's across all local radio across the UK and national and on Five Live on a Sunday. Um, and then every now and then I'll do stuff on Radio 4 or World Service. Or on Sunday, I was on Radio 4 doing Pick of the Week presenting that. So you can find me on various BBC radio channels. Yes, you can. Uh, <laughs> and it's very boldly speaking about the things, you know, that need to be said. Also, you know, Salma the Poet, because I was lucky enough to feature for like not point not 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 two seconds in this gorgeous video you did with Silly Rakes. It's just fantastic. And, you know, you can see Salma's poetry work. It's on her YouTube channel. Her novel comes out next year. So just tell us a bit more about the novel that has taken up so much of your lockdown time. Yeah, June 2022, it's out. And the working title at the minute is The Way We Work. That might change. And it's a story about three young Muslim women at the cusp of leaving university. They've all stayed on either because they're doing masters or they're doing medical degrees. So they're quite old, actually. They're not like the young university. And it's on the cusp of them leaving. And it's the year after they leave. and you know, how life changes, how they juggle their various identities. They're all with different, in different relationship situations with men that they can't be with or shouldn't be with because they're not Muslim or they're white guys and they shouldn't be with these people. And it's it's all about them juggling that in this year after their lives. And they all go on, on three very different journeys. And it's a love story, but it is fundamentally at its heart. It is a love story between these three women and their friendship and what it means and how important female friendships are. And actually when those friendships begin to disintegrate or something happens that breaks them apart, what spin on effects it can have on your life. Because actually when the women in your life disappear, it's remarkable the destructive things that can happen. And so it's kind of, it's about friendship and female friendship. Amazing, exciting. And the reason I asked you to, you know, wrap up the section talking about your novels, just to move into what's hot in industry. And what's hot in Salma's industry or what has been hot over the last six to eight months has been your social media platform. Um, and I'm speaking particularly about your Instagram um, and your Patreon. So over the last few months, you know, Salma has done several series, you know, you know, you have your chats where you just talk to the people and you started one where you're re you're writing the dictionary for us again recently um yeah. so you've taken to instagram as a very and you've made it a space of boldness and conversation and i guess you're you're checking an influencer but you're not the influencer who's just you know the the outfits tagged and the this are the products i use it's let's have a conversation and let's do it without any censure any or yeah any yeah basically that so just tell us about why I guess Instagram has been one of your platforms of choice and what it has been to be, to be the public voice of fuck the patriarchy on the platform. <laughs> because that, you know, that's, I feel like I'm like, do you want to follow someone who talks about issues about patriarchy in a nuanced, but also very just layman's? Yeah, <laughs> it's, like, it's like, this is what it is. This is what's in my DMs. This is, you know, I yeah. love that story you did about the nice guy where you just showed this repeated sort of harassment versus the mm. contradictions of what was going on in the DM versus the public, the public private ways men relate to women on social media. So yeah, why have you chosen to use Instagram in the way that you have and what has what has it been like personally, emotionally, but also for your vision of, you know, what you want to do in the world? Do you know, I always die inside when anyone says my name and influencer in the same sentence. And it does, because it does, because I, I just can't bear influencers. And whilst at the same time being influenced by them, right? There yeah. is that nuance and that contradiction there because there's, you know, an influencer that I follow because I love her home design and I just follow all of her interior home, right? And I would buy products that she recommended because I'm like, I love your style. So I say that I hate influencers, but there is a real place for them as well, right? Yeah, they are doing the work of influencing. Right, and I recognise that. What I... What I can't seem to bear is influencers who can't say anything else. You, like, if you're going to hold influence, you have to do something good with it. You can sell your products if you want, because get yours, sis, right? I am so for women being economically sufficient themselves. But there has to be more to it. I And I always say this. I'll only ever accept the title influencer if I am influencing people to make the lives of women and girls better. That is it. That's when I will I, I will happily be an influencer if that is what I am influencing you to do. You know, when women message me and they go, you've helped me either ask for more during sex or you've helped me stand up to my boss at work. 
then I am happy to be an influence. I've influenced you to do that. I'm so glad and I'm so honoured and humbled to hold that role and I take it really seriously. That's when I'll accept it. And I think Instagram for me, again, it was just a natural um, megaphone for me, I guess. It was the one that, and before that it was Twitter, right? Like when I was in corporate, I built up my Twitter to like 10,000 plus followers. Not because I was, it was just a really sarcastic, gnarly Twitter account. And I would make very sarcastic observations about the corporate world. And I use I use the C word a lot. I don't even know if I can say the C word on this podcast. I use the C word. Let's maybe not. <laughs> no, I was too far. I use the C word a lot. Yeah. Um, some, one of the directors kind of complained about me and I reported into the COO at the time and I got hauled up to be like, you, you have to stop using the C word on Twitter. It doesn't look good for the business, even though it was nothing to do with the business. And so at the time, in my life that worked really well and then when I kind of converted over to Instagram which took a lot of persuasion by a lot of people in my life I was like what is this I don't have time for it like the 90 year old that I actually am <laughs> and I just again it, it just worked well which is so strange because it's a picture format yeah. platform, and I'm a writer and I've used it for my writing but it, it just kind of naturally worked and it started and it started with my poetry and I was posting my poetry and then it started to build and build and I realized there was a huge community of poets on Instagram and an incredible community of poets on Instagram and I think that the poets of Instagram are responsible for the renaissance we're having in poetry right now as well and I just saw it as this really beautiful place that was more positive than Twitter because Twitter has a really dark underbelly and I know Instagram now does as well but at the time it was this positive place where we could all put our squidgy bits in camera and talk about how much we loved our bodies and we could just be more upbeat about life and we could write these beautiful aching poems and we could all connect. And it was really the poetry community that got me into it. And then it just kind of developed and I started telling stories in different ways. And it was it just, it was very natural, natural progression of like, well, here's a community of incredible women. And I met women, like I would go to different cities when I was traveling by myself and I would say on my Instagram, I'm in New York for the night, who wants to do a meetup? And then I I said, I'd be at this bar at six o'clock. And to my great amazement and honor, then, you know, 25 people would show up. Amazing. I'd be like, hi, we've spoken on Instagram or you follow me and hey, it's great because I always say this, what is the point? of us connecting online if we cannot talk to Do people. it offline, yeah. Well, there is no point in it. I, I'm not interested in just being your online friend. I wanna, when I'm in your city, I wanna meet you, you know? I went to, I met this poet online and her poetry was amazing. I loved it and I followed her and liked all this stuff and we started chatting. Two years later, I was in Australia and she lives in this little tiny island called Bribey Island, which is somewhere out of Byron Bay. No one goes there. They call it God's waiting room because it's just- Oh, wow. Life who go to retire and then they will die one day. And she lived there, a single mum with three boys. And she said, divert your trip, come and fly to, to Bribey Island and come and stay with me for three, four days. I was like, yeah, great, okay. We'd never, the first time we met each other physically in life was at the airport, you know, where she came to pick me up and then I stayed in her home for three days. You know, I'm looking at my wall, her work is framed, you know, a piece of her, her poetry is framed on my wall. And I think that's incredible. I never would have gone to that corner of the world. And she's a Mormon living as a single mom. Oh, wow. I experienced her life had I not met her online and then said, yes, I want to meet you offline. And so, so many of those women are still dear, dear friends of mine. And every time I'm in their state or their city, I'll, I'll call on them and, and visit them and vice versa. That's the beauty of it for me. That's what, what Instagram has given me. It's given me this incredible network of women in London and outside of, of London globally. It's given me a platform. And, and I say this and I mean it. I, can, I think I can direct everything that is good in my life that I have achieved back to my Instagram. And I, I, Instagram is, and social media is, is destructive and terrible. And there's loads of bad things about it. But my Instagram has brought me so much. My Instagram got me recognized that someone said, do you want to do a TED talk? And then my, that TED talk got me my second TED talk. And that first TED talk got me recognized to say, do you want to come and do this poetry event? Yeah. And then that poetry event got me to another poetry event, to another one. And then it got me to someone going, well, I know you actually, I've seen you out on the poetry scene. Do you want to come and do a pilot for a radio show at the BBC? You know, it all threads back to building that platform of me and my voice and saying what I wanted to say and saying it truthfully and fearlessly. It all directs back to Instagram. I think that's fantastic. And it's always great to hear other people having positive relationships to social, social media, because I think 
Now, the only people who really talk about positive relationships are brands and businesses because, of course, it's back to the money. But I'm also a person that always tells everyone, like, I love Twitter because they gave me two of my best friends in the world. And it's interesting because they're a few years older than I am, you know, they're, like, getting married, having babies. And everyone's like, how did you meet? And I'm like, Twitter. And they're like, and I'm just like, we met on Twitter. Like, we had banter and we checked to see if it worked in real life. And it did work. And it has worked for several years. So... You know, there is there is a reality of there's the bad of social social media. But I think there's so much beauty to be found there. There is so much, you know, joy to be found there where, you know, you find your community. I think where you're your authentic self, which you always are and you've all, you always have been. So we're going to like wrap up because, you know, coming to the end, which is really sad because I feel like, again, we could do this for a very long time. Again, I'm coming to your house for some cake yeah. and longer chats. Longer chats. Um, <laughs> yeah, listen, my door is open for you anytime, babes. I mean, they I still got four cake tins full. Okay, so uh, what are you doing this weekend? <laughs> Get yourself over. Again, it's one train, a long train. Yeah, to close out, you know, we always talk about expectations because, you know, beyond all my expectations. I mean, I think one thing that's clear about you is like you have no expectations and you have, you, like for you, life is about saying yes and trying things. Yeah. Um, so I guess my question is taking all what, it doesn't use the word expectation, but it's if there's something you'd like to try, that you've seen someone do and thought, mm, I'd like to try this one day, what is it? Yes, I've got an idea. I want to build an app. Oh, okay. I've got a whole business idea. I've copyrighted it already and I can't talk about it, but it's incredible. This is really annoying when people do this. It's so, so, I can't stand it. Like it's on embargo. And yeah, exactly. <laughs> I want, I want Beyonce NDA sorry yeah. I want to strangle people but I do I want to build this app and see what I can do with technology to improve the lives of women and girls and so yeah. that's my ne- that's and I've no idea how to build an app I've never worked in tech and algorithms are a complete mystery to me and my maths is awful so I need I need I just need to figure all of that out but I want to do that I want to build this app and build this business but I just need to figure out how to do it first Amazing. Okay, so what we should expect from Salma is a takeover of the tech world in three to five years. I'm giving her a timeline here, guys. So we can all keep, you know, keep her to it. So send her DMs yeah. every every January 15th. Let's give her a few, you know, a few days into the new okay. year. Just send her a DM and be like, so Salma, what's going on in tech? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm really great under pressure. As long as I have a deadline, I can do amazing things. If it's all just open, it's no good. So DM me send me those messages, hold me accountable. Yeah, so by 2016, we're going to see things happen in the tech space with Salma. Very excited about this. I will find out what it is off air. Sorry, I won't be sharing it with anyone, but I will find out over cake. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Awesome. Finally, where can we find you on socials or where would you like to be found on socials? You can find me on all the socials. I exist on all of them. So the, the easiest thing to do is probably just put my name in Google and then take your pick your poison whether it be instagram linkedin twitter youtube my website whatever just put salma elwadani in and i shall pop up somewhere amazing thank you so much salma i've absolutely loved speaking to you i feel like i've learned more about you on this than i have in time in person which is concerning but we'll fix this so i mean biggest takeaway from this is don't say no to things. There is not a limit on what you can do. The only limits are what society has told you is possible. It's not easy to shake, but if you try, you know, maybe not start, don't start, you know, at a farm. Start, you know, maybe a community <laughs> garden. You know, start small. The farm is good. I, I learned so much about hard work at the farm and about yeah, work. Yeah, like, because those wake, those wake up times, not for the faint of heart. So, you know, you maybe start at a farm, to be honest. I feel like yeah. this is is it's a great thing because you then end up writing a novel in a month a few years down the line so be like Salma take up farming <laughs> and just milk a cow and, and just change your life really thank um, thank you. You so it's so lovely chatting to you it's always a joy always a joy thanks so much everyone for listening again it's and see you next episode bye